ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. On Conversations, my guest is Costa Georgiatis, the beloved bearded landscape architect who is also host of ABC TV's Gardening Australia. Costa's magnificent beard and his wild mane of curls make him look a a little like a prophet from the Bible, but the enthusiasm and joy he exudes means Costa more resembles the character he plays on the kids' TV show Dirt Girl World, Costa the Garden Gnome. When I spoke with Costa, he just distilled his wisdom into a book called Costa's World, Gardening for the Soil, the Soul and the Suburbs. Wow. <laughs> that kind of sounds interesting. Like That book, that book the, sounds the interesting. Book, like, he's, he's done it. <laughs> it's there's all there. Few, there's a few people that have been very patient, like years, <laughs> waiting for me to say, all right, we'll do it this year. And finally it happened. So, yeah, what a pleasure to, to be here with you, Sarah. Absolute pleasure to have you. Have you been in, in your garden already this morning? Yeah, I have actually. Uh, I'm I'm uh, making a sunflower and kind of like a, a wild meadow, um, predominantly of sunflowers in a section of my verge on on the street. And uh, it's something that I got in over the weekend, and it's great because it's been raining here in Sydney and. So it's really bedded it down, and the path and all the the, the loosened straw is all settled, and I've, I've I've sown seeds under there, and I kind of just snuck down to have a little look and see how they're going, and went out and visited the chooks, and they were a little excited because I I uh, I kept them in a bit longer today because I was doing other things, and so they came out and started roaming, and yeah, the days the days gotten off to a good start. What's it do for you starting your day that way? Like if, if you're travelling and you can't begin in the garden, how's it different? Yeah, good question. I, I think the more you do it, the more you realise how much of a really valuable part of just that role of your day becomes because you're not just drawn out by all the demands of others and the demands of of the, 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 the list of the day or the requests and, and your plan and all of that sort of stuff. When, when I go out, like I may need to do certain things, but there's so many little beacons that pop up and go, Hey, Hey, look at this. This is flowered. And Oh yeah. The chooks sort of come running up and they just give you that look. Um, or you notice that, the, the the rainwaters raise the pond and then suddenly there's there's some more little boatmen floating there and I, I noticed that this morning that they've proliferated. There's so many little little boatmen floating in the in the nature pond and I saw one frog that was a uh, you know late to go late to go home or go to ground or go to go go up at up up a tree and sort of uh, had a little look at me and then hopped off. So yeah, it's kind of that chance to just allow other things to to catch you even if you have uh, uh, a few things that you want to do it's it's that real peaceful time hmm. you grew up in bondi in the same house that you live in today how different does it look now costa compared to when you were growing up there yeah the streets changed a lot um when i was really in primary school there were no street trees like you could see 
from the top of the hill to the end of the street, there, there was nothing. And there wasn't as many cars. Um, and there was only a couple of driveways that crossed the nature strip to give you an idea of, of just what it was like because not everyone had two cars, let alone, not everyone had one car, let alone two cars. And I knew everyone in the street. I knew that that was, that was the minnows there and that was Mrs. Townsend and that, that was the, the Clarks and that was the, the, you know, all the different faces. And, and we had a football field, which was between the two driveways that were on one <laughs> side of the street. One try line was one driveway and one try line was the other. So since then, it's changed a lot because in the 80s, suddenly the first high fence went up and then the second high fence with the garage right on the boundary and then driveways cutting across and then, and then houses started to get split and turned into two townhouses. So that was double the driveway. So now the whole street is full all the time with cars because there's probably a th only a third of the parking spaces. So it's just full. So it's, it's changed. It's changed a lot. But from my point of view with the, the, the garden, uh, well, the garden's changed a bit because the pool is now a nature pond. And Do you still swim in the pool as a nature pond? Well, the, the plan is this year, now that I, I got the water plants in it and they're really doing a great job, I'm going to put another round of water plants in. And yeah, the water quality is fine. And I spent many years in Austria building these very nature ponds. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people, I remember when we did a segment on it on the show, like it was fairly algae filled. And people were like, oh, I wouldn't go in that, I wouldn't go in that. And people people that saw me the next day, I said, oh, hi, how are you? And they said, oh, I'm not shaking your hand. You, you were swimming in that pool. I go, no, no, it's fine. I said, and then the plants sucked out all of that, that all of those nutrients in about eight weeks. And then the water became clear. So it's beautiful. I, After swimming in nature ponds for so long, um, if I go into a, an indoor pool, the smell of chlorine and all those chemicals, I just think, no, nah, I, 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 it does my head in. So Give me the yeah, algae. I've been spoiled. What, what about inside the house, Costa? Is it different? Does it look different from when you were a kid? Um, Dad, Dad renovated the kitchen because it, it was classic, but it, was, it had been there for, for 40 years and the cupboards were sort of falling apart. So with the exception of the kitchen and getting the back room uh, we put the, some timber floor down so it was easier to, to maintain. With the exception of that, the rest of the house is pretty much the same. There's timber on the ceiling and there's there's timber skirtings and, and it, you know, all of that, it, it has the same feel, particularly the lounge room because there's, there's a formal lounge room, even though I've got a bed in there now. Um, there's a formal lounge room that that would only get used when, when visitors came, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which was really different. It was a different kind of place. But no, there, there's the, the place is pretty similar, except now I've got a lot more house plants mm. in there. Does it feel thick with, with memories to still oh. live in the place that you were a little kid in? Is that all, always present as you're there? Oh, yeah. 500%. Um, you know, I know even just like last night we'd been filming and and I came in and I was carrying stuff in both hands and I sort of flicked the, the door at the top of the steps with my foot. So I was already halfway to the kitchen and it just slowly came and then it went clunk and it closed. And I just got the strongest memory of being at home 
and hearing the door close like that and knowing that dad was home. And yeah, it, it still really resonates through me that, that something like that, just the sound of that door closing and to think that door is pretty much the same door that, that it was when, you know, 30 years ago and it makes the same sound. So yeah, that, that, that kind of stuff is, uh, it's special for me. I, I, I think our, our memories, our memories are such a, an uncompromising thing. You get something strong like that and it just cuts through everything. It cuts through 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. It cuts through your change in, in habits or change in trends and modes and all of that. It's same with the smell. I, I, I can cook this particular soup. I've got lemon or soup, which is your traditional, I suppose you'd call it the Greek chicken noodle, but... It's a, it's a traditional soup that mum used to cook, my grandmothers used to cook. If I cook it and then I go downstairs and then I come upstairs, I feel like mum's there giving me a hug. They're mainly happy memories, it sounds like, when, when they come up to you in, in that house, are they? Yeah, look, I mean, you, you know, there, there's, there's other memories there that, that, that are part of life and the reality of, of loss and, and so on and, and, you know, losing dad. Um, yeah, losing, losing dad, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like that long ago. And, and when you, you, you sort of still got, you've still got those things that, that you were using around the house to, to help to help his day-to-day, little little things, even little markers, like little bits of electrical tape that I put on the floor that were like these these markers for him to do his exercise with. And I kind of, I think I'd get really upset if someone came and wanted to do me a favour and cleaned the house and took those away um, because I just see them and they mean, they mean a lot. You know, and and in a world where, you know, people talk about things and possessions and, you know, getting stuff, you know, like that's more important to me than any of the latest stuff because it comes with the the process that was behind all of that to to create a program that that made his exercises good and that 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 really really shook off you know, the onset of, 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 a, of a couple of conditions that if it had just been left, you know, he would have been just been written off and said, yeah, you're old and that's how it is. And, and I sort of said, no, well, you're going to exercise. And, and he, he pushed through these barriers like an absolute champion. <laughs> and um, so that piece of electrical tape has a lot more significance than sort of one and a half centimetres of black plastic stuck on the floor that I still step over and it reminds me of of those things, which, you know, in reference to your question, that, that, that it wasn't all positive, but it was turned into a positive. Mm. What was that like, that, that shift in your relationship where you go from being the child and being cared for to having that different kind of caring role for your for your dad as he was older and, and frailer, did it shift the the kind of connection you had, or was he still always the dad and and knew the son? Oh, 
Yeah, you you you, you realise you sort of go through some interesting emotions because you look at you look at your parents as these invincible people that have been there your whole life, and then when they when they age, um, you still see them as those superheroes, but you know they age and 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 these changes set in and you have to take on a different role and taking on that different role yeah it shifts it shifts the dynamic and and i think what happened we we just became friends um friends in a in a sense that we both knew what had to be done when when there were challenges and he had an incredible resilience and a resolve and a and a constitution that if he had to carry out a task he'd carry it out to the letter so when we had to do some rehab or or whatever it was he was so meticulous and at the same time as a kid growing up his meticulousness Push me to the edge. <laughs> I wasn't crying with joy. I was, I was crying with, oh, can't I do anything right? <laughs> like, it's 90%. Like, it's pretty damn good. Oh, well, you know, um, well, mate, you could have, oh, but don't rush or, you know, to the point that, you know, you'd hold something and, 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 and drop it because you, you felt like you weren't going to do it right. But, but it was because of his love, you know, and, and even though it did bring frustration and, and, and as Kerry, that's not to say that it's all salad days because, you know, you're also living and, and, and carrying out your, your, your work and your, your, your household all of that stuff and and you know you still can get tired and 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 frustrated when something doesn't happen right and and you know I kind of I look back on those times when you, you know I might have gone ah oh, just come on you, you know and 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 he'd just look at you and um and then you'd just go oh look sorry you know and and he he was incredible you know he knew. <laughs> You know, when when he'd go, oh well, the, you know, the soup's not because if he if, if I could cook him up this beautiful soup, and then if it wasn't like so so volcanic hot, <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd sort of go, mm. and then I go, what? It's not hot enough, and he'd go, no. and he'd go, ah. Oh. <laughs> so you'd take it back. So a little thing like that, you know. But in terms of the big big picture. <laughs> Everything was cool, and so, so I kind of like that. <laughs> a soup that wasn't ninety-eight degrees; it was only eighty-one. Could be enough to to have me blow up, you know. And then it, then I'd heat it up again, and it'd, it'd be happy as Larry. And you'd see that happiness, and and realise that, yeah, pull your head in. Did, did you ever go through a stage? I don't know, as a teenager, of of having big clashes, the kind of stand up fights that can happen in families was that ever part of went on with you and and your parents yeah yeah look there was a time I suppose in early early um kind of tertiary study you know early when I was studying landscape architecture and you know you've left school and you're in first second year of study and you suddenly got a car and you're operating your own terms and then you'd say you'd be home and you wouldn't come home and 
arrive late or not be there for dinner when you said you would. And, you know, so there was, there was little nuances like that, that I suppose everyone goes through when you're experiencing this opening up of your world into the next level. And I remember with one of my friends, Michael, um, cause I'd spend a lot of time at his place. We'd be doing assignments all night to get them in on time. And, and, um, y- you know, we'd have the music blasting in the studio and we're drafting and doing all this. And then his dad, his dad had come down the corridor and we'd hear the handle on the bedroom door open and he'd stick his head around the corridor. Your mother's trying to sleep. <laughs> And we knew that she was asleep. And then he'd give, he, you know, I always remember, he gave me this this lesson on how to close the door at night, not just drag it and slam it, like just, you, know, you just do this. And, you know, you remember this stuff. And, and you know, we'd, we'd, we'd come home there after big nights out and we'd be marching down the corridor carrying on like yahoos and, you know, there would be, there would be Michael's dad standing at the door when we'd come in. It's 3 a.m. Your mother's trying to sleep. And the same thing would happen at, at home, you know, but not, not in that same capacity. But, but yeah, we called it season. Like when, you know, if mum was upset with me about something, you know, we'd just, we'd just had this go, oh, yeah, you'd go, oh, how's Anley? Because uh, he used to call mum Anley because dad was Stanley and he'd go, oh, Stan and Anne, and he'd go, well, Stanley and Anley. And he'd go, oh, it's, uh, he's, uh, how's Anley? And I'd say, oh, it's season, you know, because I'd, I'd not come home and equally with him and his parents. So, so yeah, look, it, of course, I mean, they're the, they're the kind of times where you, I think if you didn't clash, there, the, 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 there wouldn't have been that, that period of growth. And, and you always came back and, and just said, okay, everything's rosy again and, and off you went. Tell me a bit about your dad's mum, your your grandma, Julia. How old was she when she came out from Greece to Australia? Yeah, well, look, I, I think that there, there, there's, a, there's a family DNA strand from Yaya that, that has such a strength. Like, she, she came out from from her island, which was Lemnos, um, on an arrangement, on, on a classic broxenia, as they say in Greek. So she was, the families had said, oh, well, you know, we've got a son, you've got a daughter, and here's a photo, and, you know, pretty serious business. And she came out, like, I mean, imagine coming out on the boat for 10 weeks or whatever, and then you get to Circular Key, and you get off the boat, and you meet the relatives, and then... You say, well, who's the old papu standing there? And they said, well, that's Romeo. And she goes, well, that's not the photo they sent me. And she walked. She said, no way. She refused to marry the the man she'd come out to yeah. to marry. That is incredibly courageous. Oh, look, it in like talking about it in twenty twenty one, people would go up. Oh, you know, well, what the hell, an arranged marriage, who, where, why does that, would that happen? But back then in in a world that was like a 100 years ago, um, that wasn't an option for for women in in that context. And when you had, you know, that, that, that cultural history, you had 
the status quo, all of those things. I mean, it kind of was what it was. So for her to actually flip the bird, um, like that's that was that was a massive statement, and but that's who she was. And so, what happened to her next after saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not marrying the granddad." The photo he does not live up to the photo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, she moved down to Queanbeyan with with the relatives, and then it was when she was living in Queanbeyan that my grandfather, who'd come out like on a totally different orbit because he was living not on her island. He was living in the north of Greece. He had to flee after the war because all the Greeks were kicked out of Asia Minor, Constantinople, Istanbul, all that area. And he ended up on a boat in Florida, then Cuba, and then spent time there and then came to Australia and ended up on the snowy and then working on the railways in Queanbeyan. And it so happened that Yaya ended up in the same building that Papu was living, and that's how they met, uh, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? Like that these two orbits came from, <laughs> like you'd draw these two lines and then who'd, who'd, who'd think that they'd cross in Queanbeyan? <laughs> like, you know. Like, Everything crosses in Queanbeyan. It's the fulcrum <laughs> yeah, right. of the it's universe. The epicenter. Yeah. <laughs> what about your other grandma, Costa? How, what kind of role did she play in your life, your mum's mum? Oh, gee. So Iolia, um, that was dad's mum, Julia, and Elpida, uh, that's hope in, in Greek. And so Yaya Elpida, she lived in our street where we currently live. And, and while she was living there, she heard that the house up the hill was for sale. And mum and dad were living over in Kingsford at that time. And they spoke to the people and they ended up buying what became our family home. So Yeo Bida lived down the street. Like there was so there's two semis and a house and then her place. Now as a little kid, like what a joy to have Yeo so close. And, and what that place represented for me was probably like you learn love from your parents. There's no question about it. And you learn... I think, unconditional love from your grandparents. And of course, there's unconditional love with your parents as well, but they, they, they also have a job to bring <laughs> you up and they have to draw lines, whereas your grandparents can draw lines when they want to stress a point, but they don't have to draw lines out of everyday logistics, let's say. So you, you realise with your grandparents there's this other... Like, so I, I learnt unconditional love from my grandma. Like, she just loved us, loved us, like couldn't, like she lit up when she saw you, she cooked for you, she wanted to sit and watch you eat just because that made her happy she would bring flowers up just because she and every time she'd bring this this particular rose up to the house and say Mirudia, Mirudia smell this beautiful rose and you know I, I, I just remember those things and running down and sometimes having sleepovers and like the distance from our house to her house as a little preschooler was a long run, you know. <laughs> and I remember running, doing that run if I'd stayed there early in the evening and mum and dad came home at 11 or 12 or 1 and, and you know, 
I, I wasn't staying over. And you'd have to run up the street and mum would be waiting at the top of the hill and you'd go through the dark sections where there were no street lights and it seemed like you were, you were doing the, the, the Harrison Ford, <laughs> Indiana Jones. And then you'd get to the top of the hill and mum would be there once you ran around the corner, she was at the front door. And, you know, those sorts of things were, were really, um, really special. And, and yeah, yeah, God, I, I loved her. Um, I used to park my first car down in her garage. So in the mornings when I'd go be off to to uni or whatever, I'd I'd go down, roll the garage door up, and sure enough, I'd hear again, you know, sounds. I think sounds are so underrated. We live in such a visual world, but I'd hear the click of of her door, and then bang, as I'm backing out, she'd be standing there in the in the in the little cutout, the, the vestibule of the side of her house, and oh, yeah, yeah, and we'd chat. Or equally, if I was coming home and I'd come down the hill, she'd hear the garage door and she'd come out and say, oh, I have some of this or do this, take this up home and come in and have a cup of tea. And yeah, you know, those, those things were, you, you know, they were, they were, she was a metronome in that part of my life. Um, and she was just there. That certain, certain things happened when you flicked little switches, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as soon as you flicked that door out, she'd come and, and you just, yeah, they're, they're, I don't know, they're, they're, they're the, you know, mm. that's who I am, mm. those things. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Costa, you were the baby of the family, the only boy with two big sisters. Were you treated differently than your older sisters? Yeah, look, I, I think, I think my, my sisters did it a lot harder than me. You know, they had to trailblaze and, and, and clear paths and they worked hard for that. Whereas when I came along, I didn't have to trailblaze on those paths. I could either use the paths that they'd crafted or just go off in my own direction. So there were benefits with being the, 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 final, the final carriage on the train. But um, equally, they, they had a lot of fun <laughs> during childhood dressing me up and stirring me up. What would they dress you up in? Oh, they'd dress me up. They'd pretend I was a puppy dog and put a leash on me (laughs) and put some milk in a bowl and say to me, come on, come on, have some milk, have some milk. And I'd pretend to be a puppy dog. And yeah, we had some, we had some fun times, you know, mum, mum was, mum was a member of the Greek Young Matrons Association, which was a charity organisation. And she used to organise all this fundraising for different things and they'd have these big balls so they had the sort of debutante balls and I remember at the end of those each year when mum was the the treasurer or the secretary she'd bring home these big boxes with all the raffle tickets and I could get in the box and bury myself in it under the raffle tickets and then you know we'd we'd do it when we knew someone was coming over and I'd hide and then um, the girls would 
that say to the person, oh, look, we've got a raffle ticket, pick here, you know, we'll, we'll pick one for you and see which number. And they'd pick it and the person would, would start opening it and then they'd go, what number is it? And they'd go, number three. And then as soon as they said that, they'd go, you won. And then I'd jump out. <laughs> you know, and the raffle tickets go everywhere and we'd scare the absolute... <laughs> <laughs> you won a baby cluster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just be tickets everywhere, folded tickets everywhere, and then we'd put them all back in and, and off we'd go again for when the next neighbour would pop in. But we had plenty of fun. We had plenty of fun together. How important was it for your mum and dad that you and your sisters learn Greek? It was really important for them because they wanted us to be able to speak Greek and, and communicate in, in language with my grandparents. Even though they would speak Greek to us and that was a good way to learn, they really insisted that we go to Greek school. How did you feel about that as a kid? Look, as a kid, going to Greek school was a hassle. It was like, oh, you know, because as a, as a primary school kid, you just get home and it's just abandoned, you know, just go home and go out on the street and get on your bicycle or your skateboard, go and play footy until... We had to come home when the streetlights came on. You know, it was like that that was it. And we just had a pack and we'd all do our thing. And But two afternoons a week I had to go to WOG school. And, and so... Who called it WOG school? Well, all the kids in the street because, you know, they'd go, well, why are you going to WOG school? So, yeah, you know how kids can be. They can be pretty ruthless in, in terms of just, well, why would you do that? Why do you want to do that? You know, and you just have to walk the gauntlet because... We used to go down to the local church hall to do it, and then Mrs. Harris, who was the teacher, she sort it's of retired. It's not a very Greek name, Mrs. Harris. Oh, yeah. Well, that that's the interesting thing, Sarah. When when a lot of the Greeks came out, and it's the same with the, with Italians and all the immigrants, they came to Australia, and there was some clerk there at the at the port saying, you know, what's your name? And they'd go, Bamba Harris, and they'd go, Ah, oh, Harris. Okay, <laughs> boom. Pumper Harris, Harris. Yep, that's near enough, mate. Yep, sweet. Come on through. So yeah, Mrs. Harris, she lived down the street. So I used to walk down, walk down the street. And the funny thing was, I had my Greek book because I had my reader, and then I had my exercise book. And Mrs. Harris had a wicked red pen, and and she'd write all the things you had to do across the week, and then she'd scratch out all your mistakes and whatever. But my Greek books were in. Do you remember Pez? that dispenser that had a head on it and it popped out the little lolly. Well, my Greek books were in a Pez bag, isn't it? Oh, man, it's random what you remember, isn't it? But but everyone knew in the street, if I was walking down the street with the Pez bag, well, I wasn't coming down to play footy that day. So, you know, they'd be down a player. They'd be like, oh, we need you, we need you. So I had to do that all the time and and get get that ribbing (laughs) each week. But... I, I'd grab my Pez bag and head down to see Mrs. Bambacaris. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first make a visit to to Greece mm. yourself? That was, yeah, that was that was one of those turning points in my life when this opportunity, because both my sisters went on this trip, which was um, for Australian Greek kids to go and see Greece, and it was organised by the archdiocese, and in my sisters went on it, and then. My turn came, and there was about 75 kids. And it was during that time where I was used as a translator for, for my other friends who 
like their grandparents were Greek as well, but they hadn't learnt Greek. And God, oh, that that was that was the that was one of those light bulb moments where you think, wow, all of those Pez gauntlet <laughs> walks came down to this. Now what do I value? I value that my parents were uncompromising. They said, no, you got to do this. And um, it was at that point that I thought, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. I'm just so lucky (laughs) to have that. And as a result of that, I then pushed on with learning French at school. And then I also did French as a general studies subject during my landscape degree. And then, you know, when I ended up living in Europe, I, I, I learned how to speak German and I'd spent a lot of time in Czech. So I picked up Czech pretty quick because, yeah, it was, it's more like that rhythm. I, I, I just hear the, the, the song of, of a language and you just latch onto it and start to sing in a sense. So, yeah, that was a turning point in my life, that trip, and coming home to say to mum and dad, thank you, thank you. Do you have a a different personality at all, Costa, when you speak Greek or maybe one of those other languages? Like, do you you feel the way you are in the world shift at all when you take on the different language? (laughs) Yeah, because you sound different. Yeah, it's quite, it's interesting. You you do take on, because you express things differently. Um, You come across differently. Your nuances you know, when I speak Greek, Greeks will say, ah, you speak in Gatharo, you speak clean, you know, because I'm saying I'm using too much English construction in there. You know, I'm using please and thank you. <laughs> they don't use that. And that's not to say that it's bad. Like that's a constructed thing in English that we go, oh, please, you know, please, can I have a coffee? And oh, thank you. Whereas the Greeks just go, give me a coffee. And the waiter's like, yep, that's my job. I'll give you a coffee. Or they go, you want a beer? Get it from the fridge. And you don't take that as an offence. He goes, well, I'm serving 17 other tables. Just grab it if you want. Otherwise, I'll get to you when that's done. I feel you've just explained every Greek restaurant experience I've ever had, Costa, and I see it with new eyes. And thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, you'd see American tourists in there wanting service. And the more they're waving, trying to get the the waiter's attention or the waitress's attention, the more they just march on and do what they have to do because that's offensive to them. You don't wave at them. Just, I'll get there. And I kind of like that because it's, you know, there's a lot of fabricated niceties that we don't need. In the the years that you were working and and learning languages in Europe, tell me who you met on the mountains of Switzerland. (laughs) Swami. So casting back to that experience on the Greece trip, I said at that time, I came home and I said to mum and dad, that's it. I said, I'm going to finish school. And I mean, this is year eight, year nine. So that this is how big an impact it had. I said, I'm going to finish school. I'm going to get my studies done. And then I'm going to see the world. And from the time I said that at about 13, 14 to when I left, we're talking about 10 years because I, I took off when I was about oh, 24. So 10 years. But I knew then that that was it. And I remember saying to mum, I'm going to be away for at least three years. And she's, mum didn't want me to go for that long. And she didn't really believe that. And 
I said, oh, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And off we went on this trip. So myself and one friend traveled through Thailand together. And then we met up uh, with our other friend in Greece. And then off we went all through the Greek islands. And then at that point, we went through Yugoslavia, Hungary, and Czech Republic. Then we split over Christmas and and me and me and Michael continued. And we had a car that we hired in the Czech Republic, a Skoda, and we got skis and camping equipment and we started to ski our way through Europe. And we're driving through Switzerland and we stopped at this lake near Interlaken. And Sarah, there, there was a foggy morning and the, there was cloud, but then there was mist on the lake and it was kind of hard to tell where the water ended and the sky began. And we'll drive along and then I remember he just pulled over and he just got out of the car and started walking. And so he walked off and I walked off and I walked along this wharf and I was standing there and then this person emerged and he says, up above the sky, there's another world. Come and see this place. And anyway, Michael came up and I'm having this chat with this guy and he was speaking in very figurative ways and he's looking at me like is this guy a fruit loop or is he fed income and I was like no no this feels fed income so we get our Skoda with summer tires we drive three and a half thousand meters up this mountain slipping and sliding (laughs) anyway he was he was sort of like a monk and he he was talking he says he says it's better to travel well than to arrive all of these things that he was saying and we were just like wow this is really interesting and we went and he organised this accommodation for us and we ended up staying in this 180-year-old little chalet, that, well, this shop. We stayed above the shop and we're skiing. We met all these people who were in the downhill race and, and Swami was, one day we were just skiing down the mountain. There was no one around. Swami just emerges in the middle of the run <laughs> and he says, come for dinner tonight. Meet me at the lodge. I was going, which lodge? He just disappeared and off he went. I don't even know where he went. We just turned around and he was gone. And, and anyway, we didn't know where we were going. We just said, oh, we'll walk down the hill. We walked down the hill. We found him. We sat and had tea and we met him a couple of nights. And, yeah, it was just one of those experiences where it's so nice when you can be open to things. And, and I think that's, that's the difference, I think, between travelling and holidaying. If, if you really travel you don't have that destination. And, and it's kind of like what Swami said. You just, you don't arrive because if you just put this dot on the horizon and say, oh, when we get there or once we get to the motel, then I'm going to start looking. But until I do that or when we get to Prague, it's going to be. So, you know, you realize that when you're traveling, it's, it's about this opportunity just to allow the flow to happen. And if I didn't say yes to Swami, we wouldn't have had two weeks where we stayed literally for nothing. And we met the whole community. We were in the annual toboggan downhill race. We then went down to Interlark and stayed in these people's place for a few days. And then they recommended we go to this next place in Chamonix, near Chamonix. And we stayed in this, this lodge. Like all these things happen because you kind of end up aligned and you're not saying, well, we're just going there. Mm. It was a great experience. Can you take that? 
that approach outside of travel to everyday life, do you think? I know exactly what you mean about the way you can be open to encounters or experiences when you, you know, in that category of your life, which is traveling. What about day to day in the suburbs? Yeah, I think it's it's possible in in every moment of our life because there's so much input coming in front of us everywhere we go, whether we're walking, whether we're driving, whether we're on, on a train, in a bus, there's, there's so many things. And if we have our head down or if we're just totally focused on, on the destination as opposed to the fact that we're moving and, and, and it reminds me of, uh, the whole idea of when I travel around Australia and I go on country and you get welcomed, it's that concept that you don't just walk through someone's house on your way to the next place. You, you actually stop at the fence and ring the doorbell and then they acknowledge you. And, then, and, and that's what I really like about that, that concept of an acknowledgement of, of country or a smoking, like when, when I go up into the Daintree and you cross the river and then you wait and then you get welcomed and you get smoked so that you don't bring all that baggage, you don't bring all that urgency, you don't bring that destination thinking. You actually have to stop and you leave that behind when you walk through that smoke. And I think we can do exactly that in terms of where we're going because where am I going and where am I traveling? Like, am I just driving along South Dowling Street or am I noticing that, oh, this overpass is over the wetlands and those wetlands are the wetlands that then connect out to Botany Bay and, and then I come out of that tunnel and I'm on the, the coast and then there's the dunes and, oh, look at the dunes. The dunes have the banks here and then there's the different grasses and all these things. So we have this capacity to see so many layers of what's going on around us when we're traveling and moving in our day to day. So when I move out to see the chickens, I'm just observing and then something gets your attention if you allow it to. If I'm head down on my phone, I won't notice that those frog's eggs that I've been waiting for are suddenly frothing on the top of the nature pond. I think we can travel with a receptiveness that elements of how we're wired now are geared the other way. They, they want us to, not they, see, look, there I am talking about they. Who are they? They, no, us, we're the ones in charge. And I think when you do take charge and you, you breathe and, and, and really smell, smell with your eyes, see with your ears, because uh, it's all those those sound concepts that I was talking about that resonate so loudly and the smell of of that soup that mum made, the sound of my yaya opening that screen door or dad coming up the stairs. You know, the more we live with our senses, then the more we make the memories. And, and I think, well, to me, they're the most valuable things. So is that what brought you back? to Australia? Was it family? Was it wanting to be around for all of those connections that, that got you to leave all those excitements <laughs> of Europe? And, and yeah. Um, yeah, well, look, I initially came back because a good friend of mine, Yanni, was getting married. So I, I, I came back for that wedding. My sister also had her first child. So I became an uncle. And that that sort of 
gave a new layer to the whole family. And I, I, I saw my parents become grandparents and you just saw that love. I, I saw, I saw that same light bulb, that, that effervescence. It, it's, it's like a, it, it's fluoro <laughs> because the, the love of a grandparent and my sister's going through that at the moment. And, and I'm so happy for her because she's moving down that road and I, I can see Yaya and I can see mum in my sister. Hmm. And it's, a be- it's such a beautiful thing because you, you can't control it. You can't say, well, I, I'm not going to be a grandparent. These are laws of nature. <laughs> you will be proud, you know. <laughs> your, your other beloved sister died much too young back in 2000, Costa, and you were godfather to her kids. How did your role change with them after your sister passed away? Yeah. You know, I think a godfather's one of those figurehead roles that, you know, you, you become part of, you become part of the village when you get asked to be a godparent and, and generally you're just part of the village and the godchild has you as, as another responsible role model to look toward. And that's generally the, 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 the extent of it. And it's a, it's a wonderful support mechanism. It's a crutch for the whole family to know that you have this this position of of respect from the family that they are willing to put you up as as someone that they want their child to draw from. And generally, that's the extent of it. But but the actual role itself is there in case something happens. And 99% of the time that doesn't happen, but when it does, uh, in this case, you, you realise, well, your number's called and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into a full-time role, but uh, you do have to step up. And I was fortunate enough to be able to step up and, and uh, be able to help support my brother-in-law and of, uh, and, and of course the, the, the children. And, and it's a decision that, you know, I, I would never change. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing I, I said at that time was I never want to look back and say would have, could have, should have, because they don't need the support when they're 30. What they need is just support and the knowledge that someone's there and to be there is priceless. I don't know if this is is too trite, but did what you know about gardens, you know, the way things grow and the cycle of of birth and death, did that help you in that time in your family, both with your grief and with this new different kind of responsibility with helping life flourish? Yeah, I I, I think around any aspect of, of death, you know what I've what I've learnt from from my experiences with it, and and probably one of the earliest experiences would have been my grandfather. He he was such a, a, a certainty in my life, and he was such a role model and such a humble, loving human. Um, he was probably the first person that. I experienced like close, like a close person. Um, and yeah, I just remember that period. I, I remember the, the deep sadness and, 
going to the going to the house and and not finding him in the garden, and then noticing how the garden that you know things weren't then being tended and and things changed because he was looking after it every single day, and you, you see this. So in in terms of that question, what you see is that nature by nature, will prevail. It will just do what it wants to do. And you can fight it or you can go with it. And I suppose what I learnt was that everything we do is about being a part of nature but bringing the... It's the human element. The garden is a garden because we're in it together. You know, my strongest memories are that I was in the garden with my grandfather and with my grandmother. And when we're all in there having lunch or a dinner in the garden. So, so there's, there's the wild part of nature that we set up and be part of by planting plants that bring the birds and bring the insects and the pollinators and the predators and help build the soil. You know, like my grandfather didn't know what permaculture was, but he was a practicing permaculturist and organic farmer back back then. And we can do all these things to support and nurture nature, but then it's how we step onto that stage and how we play it. And that's that's what it is about community. And that's why I see community come together around growing and gardening and sharing and, and harvest because when you plant something, you get this hope. And, you know, I would always be hopeful when I'd come to their place because I was hoping I'd find Papua out in the garden and then hoping that there would be something to eat and there would be, you know, here's a carrot, here's a strawberry. Come and have a look. I need you to help me with this because they're going to be the olives that you'll be eating in a couple of months and do this and do that. And, you know, it reminds me of Phyllis, the 100-year-old gardener that has become one of my besties now. And, you know, her waking up in the morning and just walking out barefoot at 100 years old to look at what she'd done yesterday and say, hmm, that looks good, but I think I need to do that now and then I'll do this and then I'll do that. So we build this connection to the day, to the week, to the month. We we create this certainty around around nature because nature's like a metronome. It's going to turn up every morning. It turns up and, and how we observe it, how we take in the signals, the, the more we tune our goggles to those signals, then the more our day and our our heart and and I think that 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 hope because I mean hope is what keeps everyone going and then when when you have that hope you're happy and and you step forward you don't feel you don't feel broken or shattered even in the midst of you know a passing and and so on the garden can still give you that calm that certainty and that knowledge things are moving. Costa, I hope all your sunflowers bloom on your street and, and always. It's been, it's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Absolute pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for uh, stirring me up. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. 
You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.